This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I have been a professor of medicine and a clinical cardiologist at UCLA for about 25 years. But about 12 years ago, I got a telephone call that changed my life. And that call came from one of the veterinarians at the Los Angeles Zoo. And he called me because one of their chimpanzees had woken up with a facial droop. They were concerned that she might have had a stroke. And he asked if I'd come to the zoo and image her heart to look for blood clots and other things that might have been the problem. And this is the hospital at the zoo that I went to. And um, this is actually me with my first non-human animal. And I'm going to come back to her in just a moment. But a few weeks after I visited with this chimpanzee, I was asked to rule out a torn aorta in a gorilla. And not long after that, there was a California condor that they noted a heart murmur in, and they asked if I would look to see whether one of the valves was torn, which in fact it was. There was a California sea lion whose lower body had filled with fluid, and they were concerned about congestive heart failure and asked if I'd come. And in this picture, I'm listening to the heart of a lion uh, who had had a collection of over 700 cc's of fluid in the sac in which her heart is contained. And in a collaborative procedure involving veterinarians and human cardiologists, we drained the fluid from her heart. And this, by the way, is a procedure that I have done on hundreds of human patients. But I must say that the procedure itself was... um, identical to the procedure that I've done uh, on humans with the exception of this. (laughs) And where is it? There we go. And that. Let's get back to my first patient, this chimpanzee who had had the the suspected stroke. I remember when I first put the probe uh, into her mouth and slid it down the esophagus, I turned to the screen and this is what I saw. A four-chambered beating heart, a left ventricle, a right ventricle, two atria. But I noticed that there were blood clots moving, these round, bouncing balls, and that the upper chambers were enlarged. And as soon as I saw that picture, it reminded me of a human patient I had imaged at UCLA some weeks before who had the enlarged atria and the blood clots. And I realized that these two patients, one human and one chimpanzee, had spontaneously developed the same kind of infiltrative heart failure that I had been treating for years with high technology and advanced pharmaceuticals. And I found myself being a little bit surprised. But then I was more curious about why I was surprised. I mean, I certainly knew that we shared a common ancestor with chimpanzees between five and seven million years ago, which of course is a blink in the scope of evolutionary time. And as an undergraduate, I had worked for four years in a museum of comparative zoology. But when I had gone to medical school, and like most medical students today, what I had learned the connection between animal and human health was, was infectious, pathogenic, zoonotic. And of course, there is no question that animals play an important role in the transmission of diseases that have a high impact on human communities. Even more so now, the One Health community is helping us realize that the majority of infections that will impact human populations are coming from animal reservoirs. 
But what I didn't learn, and most medical students don't, is that the father of modern medicine, Sir William Osler, is also considered the father of modern veterinary medicine, and that one of his teachers, the father of modern pathology, Rudolf Virchow wrote in the 19th century, between animal and human medicine, there is no dividing line, nor should there be. The object is different, but the experience obtained constitutes the basis of all medicine. But what I was finding was that while I was taking care of my human patients at UCLA, I would go to the zoo, and I would hear the veterinarians discuss the management of metastatic breast cancer, or the, the management of brittle diabetes, or the dosage of serotonin reuptake inhibitor drugs like Prozac for some of their patients who are anxious or compulsive. And I realized that as much as I knew about human medicine, I knew so little about veterinary medicine. And it turns out there has been a gulf between these two fields. Now, there are many reasons for that. Some are historical, some are cultural. But I'm going to focus on two for a moment. The first, I believe, has to do with our essential ambivalence about embracing our own animal natures. But the other is human exceptionalism. We all are scientists, many of us are scientists here, and we theoretically accept that human beings are merely one species in a spectrum of other species, not uniquely unique, but unique like all others. Love this, and we can zone in and see, here we are. And yet, and yet, even the most scientifically minded of us may um, harbor some residual human exceptionalism. In fact, I believe there is a medical expression of human exceptionalism which is contributing to this gulf between the fields. And I became curious, what is the extent of the overlap in the pathology of humans and animals? And so I asked, do non-human animals develop heart attacks or heart failure, type 1, type 2 diabetes, brain tumors, concussions, strokes, asthma, allergies, breast cancer, leukemia, infertility, painful periods, sexual dysfunction, and, of course, the answer to every one of those questions is yes. Now, of course, our bad human habits amplify the risk of disease. It is the basis of preventative medicine, and I have spent 25 years encouraging improved diets and more action, activity. And yet, although our bad human habits may increase the risk of disease, the essential vulnerability to disease is ancient. Let's quickly talk about two big killers, breast cancer and heart disease. We know that breast cancer has a high human impact on the human community. It's the leading um, cause of, of cancer among women. But breast cancer is not unique to humans. In fact, um, many of you who have cats may know that cats are at risk. Dogs can be as well. This is a mastectomy scar from a cat whose owner um, felt a, a mass when she was petting her. And in fact, breast cancer has been found in mammals uh, of almost every um, variety from polar bears to elephants to marsupials, llamas, marine mammals, beluga whales. In fact, notably, there seems to be a particularly high rate of breast cancer among some big cats. 
We can talk about that at another time, why that might be. But it's notable, one fascinating connection is that the reason that some jaguars have a particularly elevated rate of breast cancer is probably related to a mutation of the BRCA1 gene. And it is the same mutation that makes some human females at elevated risk for breast cancer. Now, of course, there are regions of the world where practices, habits, genetics, diets um, are different, and the rates of breast cancer are lower. But that merely underscores the fact that while our bad human habits may increase the risk of our disease, the essential vulnerability to disease is ancient. The age of mammals started about 200 million years ago, and I suspect that the vulnerability, therefore, to breast cancer can be stated, in a sense, to be as old as that. What about heart attacks? So cardiovascular disease, it is the number one cause of death globally in the United States. Those statistics um, are amplified. And we know that most heart attacks are caused by the progressive buildup of atherosclerosis in the arteries, that eventually that atherosclerosis breaks. There is a blood clot that ceases the flow of blood through the artery, and the muscle downstream dies. And in this section of an artery, you see the atherosclerosis, the plaque. It has fractured. There is a blood clot, and this individual died of a stroke. But this individual was not a human. What we see here is an, Himalayan, uh, an Egyptian vulture, rather, fl- uh, flying on the base of the Himalayans. And it turns out that if you look at a phylogeny um, of atherosclerosis across avian species, every place that there is a star, there's at least one species within this order in whom atherosclerosis and stroke, heart attack, and other clinical syndromes have been seen. Now, of course, our bad human habits amplify the risk of disease. I've spent my life as a clinician helping patients modify their lifestyles. We know that. We know that bad human habits do contribute to heart disease. But recognizing that atherosclerosis and heart attacks and strokes have been identified in animals as varied as walruses, dolphins, camels, and, of course, humans suggest that while bad human habits may amplify the risk of disease, the essential vulnerability is ancient. And again, the timeline pointing to atherosclerosis. And if this is true of the somatic diseases like heart attack and uh, breast cancer, it is also true for mental illnesses. There is a hair-plucking syndrome seen here in this picture where people pluck out the hair of their eyelashes, um, of their, any part of their body. But it is remarkable that this bears a similarity to a hair-plucking and feather-plucking syndrome that is seen in some bird species. You can see that this parrot has plucked, denuded um, his thorax. And it is notable that the compulsive tail chasing seen in bull terriers, treatable with Prozac, or the flank sucking, the compulsive flank sucking seen in Dobermans, treatable with Prozac, bears similar similarities to the compulsive behaviors we see in some humans with obsessive compulsive disorder. And it is notable that like some human beings with anorexia nervosa, some non-human animals respond to social stress by starving themselves, sometimes to death, while others deal with stress 
by causing themselves to regurgitate. Our bad human habits may increase our risk of disease, but the essential vulnerability to disease is ancient. Why is this important? There are scientific and medical advances that can come of thinking comparatively, looking across species. Translational medicine traditionally means taking research that is being done at the bench in the laboratory and bringing it to the bedside. But I would suggest that there is another way of working translationally, and that is by looking across species and across time for connections that generate novel hypotheses that can ultimately be translated into science that can save lives. Furthermore, I believe these insights have the potential to reduce stigma and increase compassion for people suffering from physical illness and mental illness. I would like to end by modifying the words of the late, great Susan Sontag, to reflect the species-spanning nature of health and disease and the deep and ancient connection we all share, not just with other human beings, but with all of the patients on the planet. She wrote, Illness is the night side of life, more onerous citizenship. Everyone and everything who is born holds dual citizenship in the kingdom of the well and in the kingdom of the sick. And although we all prefer to use the good passport, sooner or later, each of us is obliged to identify ourselves as citizens of that other place. Thank you for your attention. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.